for just about everything for the outdoors. Go to MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. As hunters, we all have knowledge and skills related to different kinds of game. However, when we hit the elk woods, we sometimes make false assumption that this knowledge translates directly to elk hunting. So what does and what doesn't? Well, y'all, today we have Mark Carlton of Native by Carlton Calls, Mr. Bill Ayer and of Slayer Calls, and we've got the Flatlander himself. That's right, Mr. Cole Wilkes, your Elk Bros Elk Hunting Coach, and some of our Elk Bros crews here tonight with the goal of answering those questions. So, my friends, pull up a chair, adjust your volumes just right, and welcome to Blue Collar Elk Hunting. Welcome to Blue Collar Elk Hunting, brought to you by ElkBros.com. With your host, Gilbert Ornelas, and elk hunting coach, Joe Gillian. You want to hunt elk? They live to hunt elk. Their goal is to share with you what they have learned grinding it out for over 35 seasons, doing what they love. So come on into camp and set a spell. Welcome to Blue Collar Elk Hunters. Hello there, everyone. If it's your first time with us, glad to have you. Hope you enjoy our show. And as always, for those blue-collar hunters following us and grinding it out with us every week, welcome back to Elk Camp. I'm Gilbert Ellis, the host of your show, coming to you from an undisclosed area here in deep South Texas and from the Dallas DFW area. That's right. We've got the northern don of the Venezuelan mafia, Mr. Manano Gratarones with us. And from Cuesta, New Mexico, that's right. We got the legend R.C. Knox in the house. And from Burnett, your Elk Bros Elk Hunting Coach. That's right. The Flatlander himself, Mr. Cole Wilkes. And from Cimarron, we've got WWJGDs in the house. Your Elk Hunting Coach, he's fired up and ready to go. And joining us tonight, we have from Native by Carlton Calls, Mr. Mark Carlton, and from Slayer Calls, Mr. Bill Ayer. What's up, gentlemen? <clears throat> What's going on, Eagles? 
Hey, Bill, Mark, welcome. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate you having us on here. Well, first of all, um, there's going to be some apologies going on because we've got between, we got Gil out there at deer camp. <laughs> we got Cole trying to get ever the best service he can. And something went and landed in my throat this morning and I don't have much of a voice, but we're going to, we're going to crank through this, man. <laughs> and Joe, you forgot to mention that, uh, every time that I speak, you use subtitles because I don't know how to, you know, speak proper English. So you have to apologize <laughs> because of that one too. <laughs> now you're the only one that's going to be coming across clear, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, Mark has actually been putting in a 72 hour hiatus over there, man. He's been working and he jumped off for us right there. Bill, thanks for coming in and jumping in with us, man. And I, I love the beard, man. I hadn't yeah. seen that yet. That's the first time. I don't know how much my wife loves it, but I'm going with it. <laughs> Do us a favor, man. Mark, why don't you, uh, for the people that might not, I don't know if they've been living under a rock or what, for the people that might not, give us that 10,000-foot view, man. Tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Uh, native by Carlson Game Call. So our background is uh, Wayne Carlson's calls from the early 80s, and um, we kind of rebooted about 2015. And went back into the call business and uh, Carlton's calls is still around over on the HS side now, but native started back up. So we're still homegrown back here in Montrose, Colorado and going back at it again. And coming back at it like strong, man. I just love the whole, uh, native by Carlton brand, man. And you know, uh, you know, Manano, I think you're right, man. Manano, I came on here when Manano says I look, uh, because I just had a birthday, he says that I look. <laughs> Um, what'd you say, Manano? You look like 80. You turn 61, you look like 80, but <laughs> you sound like 100, Joe, today. <laughs> yeah, that voice, man. Uh, sorry, y'all. It's just, it, it is what it is, man. I'll try to show a little bit of enthusiasm, though. Bill, how about you, bro? Yeah, so Slayer Calls, we started about, oh, five, six years ago, and we got, we started, you know, got our feet wet in the waterfowl industry. You know, I've been hunting waterfowl for the last 41 years and so it was a passion of mine and got tired of the technology world and, and moved uh full-time into slayer about four years ago and started making waterfowl calls and uh last year was our first introduction into the, the elk world you know the bugle tube and some reeds and, and so forth so i'm um, super excited to be part of the the elk industry you know we're the kind of new kids on the block so there's you know we're still learning a lot but uh, it's been a fun ride so far and the people that we're meeting has been awesome and I'm blessed to be able to meet you guys and be part of this. So thank you. Bill, what area do you live in, brother? Yeah, we're in Eagle, Idaho. So, you know, 90% of what we do is built here in Eagle, Idaho. There are some things that are built outside of uh, Idaho, but everything is here in the United States. For this show that we're having this evening, this is going to be kind of like a roundtable type show. And one of the reasons that I really wanted Mark and Bill and especially even Cole to be here is to add that flavor and in, in what people are going to find out about here pretty doggone short is that we have a special topic that is going to really be on touching a lot of different things in hunting areas and bringing those to the table. And I really felt like 
the background of these guys because, I mean, you take Mark. I mean, Mark is an incredible elk hunter. He's been, I mean, his family is, man, they are like, you know, legends of elk. Uh, that, uh, but one thing that, that they also are a huge man is in the turkey world. And mm-hmm. I mean, gosh, man, I mean, you've been calling turkeys probably since you were knee high to a grasshopper, dude. We've, yeah, we've been in the turkey side arguably longer than the elk. And, you know, I think the last episode we did, we talked a lot about the history and where mm-hmm. Wayne came from, what that looked like and how, how big of a part the turkey side was to that and, and how that spilled over into the elk world. Um, but yeah, I mean, easily the turkey has always gone hand in hand with everything we've done. Right. And so with that, and, you know, and you're a hunter, hunter. You know, same thing with Bill. You're a hunter, hunter. Cole is a hunter, hunter. This guy was just in Oklahoma the other day, um, rattling in some bucks out there, got it done in Oklahoma, traveled over there. You know, we've got, uh, uh, Manano and I mean, all these guys in Texas, man, hunt a lot of pigs. So they bring a lot of that to it. RC Knox, who's been a, a wildlife manager here in New Mexico for years and years and has been guiding and hunting and I mean everything from mule deer, antelope, elk, all of that. So he brings all that flavor there. And Gil, man, Gil's just a regular killer, man, has been do it dealing with everything in South Texas down there between pigs, white tail, turkey, and this guy's done a lot of exotic stuff. So there's a lot of flavor in this group right here that we're gonna be able to bring in today. So I'm excited about that. But Gil, before we do that, we gotta do some. Before we jump into the content, you know, we got to honor our listeners and give them quick shout outs to our top listening cities this week, Joe. Yeah, absolutely. But, um, and before I do that, I want to give a huge Elk Bro shout out to Kurt Hargens of Fort Wayne, Indiana, because actually tonight's show, um, like so many of our shows actually came from an email from that Kurt sent in. His email basically said that he wanted us to share some insight on which whitetail or hogs, turkey, predator, duck, or geese techniques translate directly to elk hunting, as well as talk about mistakes that hunters might make using skills that they learn doing all this because all of us, when we learn something, we learn a certain way to hunt that we're successful and we go to hunt something else. We try to translate what we know and what we do into doing that. And in doing that, some of it works, some of it absolutely doesn't. So today's goal will be to use this round table of guys here to do the best we can to cover Kurt's topic. But first, some shout outs to our top listening cities. And up first, it is literally a city of many firsts, our nation's first capital and where the national day of Thanksgiving was first proclaimed. So our top first listening city, <laughs> man, I'm just <clears throat> Self, man. I mean, my voice is just hilarious. You sound like you're going through puberty again, but <laughs> I just went through my 16th birthday. <laughs> and that's going to be York, Pennsylvania. York, Pennsylvania is York, in the Pennsylvania house. in the house, man. And you know what? Go check out York and see how many firsts that doggone city is, man. Incredible. Uh, this top listening city was used for the setting of the 1996 film Fargo and is home to the Minnesota Fishing Museum. This is no less than Brainerd, Minnesota. Brainerd, Minnesota. 
Rainer. Rainer. Rainer is in the house. I'm going to give a shout-out to the Falk family in Brainerd, man, because they own MF Athletic. The Falks were the company that uh, I used to buy all of our track equipment from hmm. back when I was coaching at Cimarron, and they really helped us do a lot of good things, man. So shout-out to Bill Falk and those guys over there. Joe, next. Our next top listening city is home to the loved Missouri Wall of Fame with depictions of Calamity Jane and T.S. Eliot and Yogi Berra, to name a few, in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Unbelievable little town on the Missouri River, on the Mississippi River up there that goes goes through it. It's it's an awesome place. Southeastern state Missouri's there. My daughter visited campus there when she was playing uh softball. Neat little town. Shout out to Mark Redburn and the uh and the Red Hawks there at southeastern state Missouri. Making it to the top of the list this week, the proud home of an incredible historic landmark and centerpiece for their community events, the incredible and majestic 350-year-old Danville Landmark Oak Tree in Danville, California. California. That's cool. I wonder how big that oak tree is. It's huge. That's not far from where I grew up. That's not far from where I grew up. The story. That's cool. Have you ever seen it? The story. No, I have not. There's a ton of elk or, uh, oak trees in that area, but I've, I've never seen that particular one. It's incredible. 350 years old, man. That's crazy. So yeah. with that said, man, with those shout outs out there and thank you to all of our top listening cities and you're listening to us and we just can't thank you enough. So, um, for our main content, let's get this party rolling because man, it's going to be a lot involved here. So like I said earlier, as hunters, we all have knowledge and skills related to different game. However, we sometimes make false assumptions that this knowledge translates directly to other games such as elk. We've said that whitetail hunters hide behind trees and hesitate to draw fearing detection. Um, we, our explanations on calling and how emotion and cadence influences the message uh actually translate to duck and goose calling and makes sense to those guys trying to grasp concepts. We've also mentioned differences in the anatomy of hogs versus elk relating to hitting vitals. And you know when we a lot of us don't think about stuff like that and how critical is because I know myself like when I go to hunt pigs I totally change how or I have to really work a change on how I'm going to do my shot placement because part of me wants to do the same thing that I do with elk. So those are just a few examples. So tonight we've got everybody together, um, all of you guys with different skill sets hunting other critters, and we're going to talk about what translates and what doesn't. And when I do this and you know what, uh, you guys are going to probably have to help me out in this talking part, but, uh, we've got some questions that we're going to direct at some guys, but after we do that, anybody and everybody has something to say, just, uh, let's throw that in. Okay. Got it. Sounds good. And Mark, I actually want to start with you because, you know, it seems like we're always going and we always hear every year this comparison between turkey hunting and elk hunting, right? Yep. And we always hear about how much turkey hunting 
translates into elk hunting. So let's do this. So let's first start where turkey hunters might go wrong using some of those skill sets directly elk hunting. I think the obvious one, and I, there's only a couple wrongs in in my opinion anyways, is going to be, I think wind, of course, is, a, is the gigantic factor on elk, right? Turkeys could care less about the wind. And I think the t- topography alone, you know, turkeys are still going to do some stupid turkey stuff. They're going to hang up on little pieces of wire. They're going to hang up on a ditch. They're going to hang up on stuff that just doesn't make any sense, you know, relatable to elk. But for the most part, man, it is primarily just the wind. Everything else crosses over in some way, shape, or form, whether it's hens picking up gobblers and leaving town. It's the same deal on elk. I I don't feel like when we're in the woods and we blow elk out, I don't think it's the call shyness of us pushing a bull off. I think it's us pushing cows off and they're just taking the bulls with them. It's the exact same thing on Turkey, but I think uh, energy cadence, everything that we do crosses over. Um, I think even if you bump turkeys and there's an alarm clock, it's the same deal as a spike bark. I think you're going to cover it up the same way. You're going to manage it the same way. I think it's almost an identical situation. You know, I think, the biggest difference is going to be a turkey's a hell of a lot less to pack out, and the wind is a factor. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Man. What do you think about the whole camo deal between turkeys and elk? Uh, I mean, and that's a that's a good point too. I mean, supposedly turkeys do see color, so I think that that's going to be a much bigger factor than it is for elk. Elk, I you know, I, I don't think everything sees you on the bigger scale. Yeah, you know, I think you can wear just about anything on elk anymore. I think camouflage for big game can be a little over. You ain't, you ain't fooling the turkey's eyes. You move, they're going to catch you. Yeah, yeah, I, I think turkeys are, are uber sharp on that. One thing that um I don't hear a lot of people talk about in comparing the two is you can almost do with elk with what you do with turkeys as far as putting them to roost. Yeah, just like putting the elk to bed, you can put that turkey to bed too. Yeah. You know, you can, anybody can get up in the morning, drive to an area and then try to find a bird. You know, you can try the shot gobble, just like you can try to get a bull to respond back from a location bugle or something like that. Um, but if you actually do your work the evening before, you know, by finding out where they are that night doing that location bugling, you know, finding out where they are that night so you're already on them in the morning, man, that's that's made you so much more efficient the next day. Yeah, no, completely agree. Yeah. And there's going to be little small things here and there that, like I said, won't, won't cross over, but for the most part, it, there's going to be some way you can tie it. So what are some of your favorite strategy <laughs> techniques that you use for turkey, Mark, that you apply directly to elk as far as your calling goes yeah as far as calling and i and i have to go a step back even before the calling aspects i think the calling is a big piece of the puzzle but i still think knowing your country knowing your dirt and knowing how they flow in and out is still the biggest piece of the puzzle um i still think whether it's deer elk turkey duck or anything it's it's the time in the woods are, are still a quantifiable piece of the puzzle to being super successful um but as far as the calling deal, I think the probably the, the first thing that I really key on is that when you get close and how you call and how you handle that, I think it's the exact same correlation of pushing gobblers off. Like I said, we don't a gobbler never leaves a yelping hen. Those hens pack up and they leave. You know, so 
It's the same deal on the elk side. Like I said, I, I think when you get really aggressive on cow calls with a big mature sounding, you know, cow sound right up on top of them, I think those other cows pack up their their camp and they leave and you lose them in the same way. So I think you have to use those same kind of tactics. That's probably the first correlation that I really pay attention to in there. Everything else is going to be situational. You know, it's going to, one thing's going to work here in one place where it's not another and, and vice versa. You just kind of have to play it situationally. But like I said, it all crosses over. Energy is huge on how you call. I, I think that that plays a, a gigantic role. Explain thing, that. Well, so, you know, we always want to, want to hunt turkeys or elk or ducks, whatever. We, we, the more of them that have not been called to or hunted that have no pressure are always a, a way better aspect to hunt versus one that are pressured up. So when you get into those pressured up situations, things that have been hunted a lot, you know, you have to tactically kind of work around that. You have to change your calling a little bit. You have to move a little bit slower. You got to change your energy up. Um, you know, I think all those things are going to be extremely similar on that. More finesse on the pressure side. Yep. 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 You know, it seems like everybody's more bull oriented when they're calling. And it seems like a lot of turkey hunters think about just the gobbler aspect of it. Whereas really those hens are the folks. And when you were talking about, when you're talking about how they flow in and out, you know, for example, of an area. Now let's take this to elk because you know, when you have bulls preseason, when they're in a mode that uh, they are kind of pretty much doing that same thing every day, they're only going to be so far from that one area and that, you know, where they're getting their feed, where they're getting their water. And then when it translates to the rut where all of a sudden they're not in that area anymore and they're moving off and they're going to different places like that, you're still using, if you're going to pattern anything, if you're going to find out what is actually going to certain areas to feed so that you can find those bulls, it's going to be those cows. Does that translate over to the turkeys as well? Yeah, but, I mean, and you guys too. So, like, my elk hunting this year, I hunted a fresher area that I hunted one year prior and hunted it hard. Um, I didn't get a hunt last year, so I was back in it for the second time this year. But even within my second time this year, I mean, it's just – and I know you guys see it on, on your side too. There's – there's places they like to be in the morning. They shift due to the wind and everything else security wise by the afternoon. And you've got to know how that flows and where to be and when to be there. You know, when to have to walk in there, when you have to leave. And I think turkeys do a very similar thing. I think Western turkeys is, and I think we do need to say this. I think Western turkeys are a little different conversation because they cover so much damn country out here. But for most guys back east, you know, we got six million turkey hunters statistically. Um, and all those guys are Eastern guys. Those birds run a smaller circuit. So a lot of those guys learn how to hunt those turkeys and they know where they roost today, where they're probably going to be in three days. You know, those same trees, those same areas, where they're going to feed, where they want to travel through, what's safe and secure for them. I mean, they'll, they'll learn those. So if you can translate that over to your elk side too, it makes all the difference. So I mean, if you know where to be and when by, that, that's half the game. So can you go to an area and look up and say, well, that's, that's a, that's a roost ridge? Sometimes, you know, I think we, I can look at some of that and have an idea, but it's just an idea. It just gets me in the ballpark without being able to hunt it a few times for a couple of years and learn it. Right. You're still fine. And even out west here, um, you know, turkeys, they winter like the deer and the elk. They, they winter in these big, huge flocks at two and three hundred 
closer to town on these big ranches. And then as the snow melts, they, they push on up into the mountains, you know, they will roost on those same trees every year, you know, and yep. they'll, they'll, they'll have this spot, this spot, this spot. And, and at this point, I, I mean, I, I know where I'm going. I just got to get there. So the, they are, they are definitely territorial animals. Yeah, to, to a large degree, but there's some of them, you know, the curveball is always like, so going back into the history side a little bit with Wayne, when we did the first turkey project here back in the early 80s that dad spearheaded, you know, forever ago, we put telemetry on turkeys in Montrose. They ended up in Utah the next year. Oh. So some of them will damn sure cover the country. But I think back east, not so much. I, I think they're a lot more, I think it's a smaller pattern. It's a lot closer and a lot denser. I think it's just a Merriam's deal on the western side. But for the most part, every year and even this year, um, it's changed a little bit. But for the most part, those same roost trees, those same ridge lines, those turkeys pretty much will go back to it. We've had a, a, a short curveball here, and, and, and we're getting more on the turkey side of it now, where they have select cut the entire Uncapagre Plateau out our back door here in Montrose. And after select cutting and opening up the habitat for the turkeys, the turkeys have damn gone everywhere now. They're close. They're a drainage over. They're a ridgeline over. They're still there, but they have shifted, you know, anywhere from a thousand yards to half a mile away. I mean, they, they have changed their patterns just a little bit, but it's been interesting to see that by doing some mitigation and, ma and management for the wildfire stuff that we're dealing with here that has changed their, their pattern slightly. Have you seen any of that translate to elk? No. Well, I, no, I take that back. I don't know. I'm, I'm starting to. So that unit I'm hunting and where I was at this year, cause we have all the beetle kill, right? Right. Um, the first five years where everybody was like, Hey man, this, you're going to have a huge mass crop underneath. You're going to have more forage. You're going to have more elk, man. For the f first five years, I thought they were full of crap. In fact, the elk packed up and left, man. Um, the last few years, the elk has gotten a lot better in that unit specifically. And the crop for feed underneath the canopy now is massive. Like it is knee deep grass freaking everywhere to where those elk, yeah. I mean, if food source is a non-issue, they, they can go anywhere. It, it's pretty crazy how much food resource was up there this year. Like, I mean, it, it set me back, man. It was just nonstop everywhere. We hunt out here in South Texas and turkeys are everywhere. Uh, the Rios are. But last year was a really slow year on our ranch for Rios in the places that I've always seen them and I've always hunted them. And we've got, man, pretty much a professional turkey hunter in our mix and Chad Russell from Mississippi. And these guys are like diehard. I mean, he's got turkey tracks on his legs and his back tattoos, <laughs> big fanned out. He's, he's way off yonder like we are for elk. He loves them turkeys, man. So he was just telling me last year it was really hard to find them, and he was right. But all of a sudden, this year, they're back. And, man, I mean, they're in the same places, roosting in the same spots. Uh I, I find sometimes elk are like that. You know, some years they're not in that in that zone where we've hunted them before, and then the next year it's hot again, you know. And I don't know what drives that other than their migration or maybe the food wasn't as good or or uh, maybe the predators were heavier that year, more pressure. Uh, we had quite a bit of pressure on our ranch this, this past spring with some, we had an outfitter that was in here hog hunting and ran dogs. And I think that really pushed a lot of the turkeys out. 
I think it can, but even the elk side too, even where we're at this year where I finally punched my tag out was a spot I haven't hunted for six, seven years just because there hadn't been that many elk over there. This year there was, there was damn sure enough to spend a couple days over there worth. Um, but you know, you definitely see it ebb and flow and, and we, and we do here too, for sure. And I, you know, I don't know. They say nationally turkeys are actually going down. Uh, the, the numbers aren't what they were just, just statewide, not just caught, I mean, United statewide, um, that they're trying to, you know, figure out what that situation is. But, you know, it, it you all flows. Predation, I, I don't know. They're, a lot of them kind of goes back to that. Part of their theory is, and they have yet to prove it, is the way that they're timbering. So back in the day when guys were timbering by hand, right, they would burn more. A lot of that foliage underneath would be cleared out. So now they're just going in with masticators and just tearing everything down in the wood. Yeah. They don't need that that maintenance. Um, that's part of their theory. And I'm super curious to see this main area that we hunt over here because we had, like I said, last year was the first year that the entire plateau has been select cut. And the turkeys are freaking everywhere. Like there's no rhyme or reason hardly to what it has been in the past. I'm super curious for the next couple of years how that looks. Bill, let's change the channel a little bit. Let's go over because this really, I thought, I thought this was really interesting because when Kirk gave us this question, he threw duck and goose calling into the mix of skill sets that might translate. And that's something that I, well, for me, you know, I've never you know, even thought about doing that until he mentioned it. So with your background of duck and goose calling, how much of that translated to elk hunting for you? Yeah, I, th- I think a, a ton, you know, I think, um, I mean, first of all, just, just you operating a call, right? Cause you know, on a duck call, you have a reed and you have air that you're blowing to cause that reed to make sounds. So just from the calling aspect, I think it translates really well because you have to learn how to use your diaphragm air. You have to learn how to use the anatomy of your tongue and your mouth with pressure and how you're dropping your jaw and all those things, right? So, you know, um, learning how to do that on a duck call, you have to be very, very precise so that duck call or goose call will not even run. So, you know, Cody McCarthy, who won the uh, 2021 elk calling ch- championship, he's a damn good uh, turkey caller. He's a damn good uh, duck caller. And I truly believe it's just he's learned how to use his air very well and to, you know, to be able to use the call. And not to say you have to be a world championship caller to kill, you know, turkeys, elk, or ducks, um, but it helps, right? Um so I think that translates really well. And then, you know, at the bare bones of things, animals need food, water, and cover and, and security, right? And I think waterfowl are the same exact way. So I think it starts with good homework and scouting, right? Finding where they're feeding in the cornfields, wheat fields, or whatever. Where are they going to loaf, you know, to rest, uh, find security, find water, um, so you're looking at patterns, um, of these birds and what are their routes, just like you would elk hunting, right? Where are they bedding? Where are they going to feed? You know, where are they finding that security? So I think that translates super well, um, to the elk, you know, hunting, um, part of things. And then also wind, you know, the one thing that's different about what I'd say was different about, um, duck hunting is once you, position yourself you're kind of stuck whereas elk hunting you can move yourself right okay they're uphill i'm going to go get up to their level 
and you could you can move to get yourself in a better situation to make things happen. Whereas, you know, you do your homework, you figure out where the wind's coming from, how are you going to position yourself. So once you do that, you know, ducks want to land into the wind. They're not trying to sniff you out and, you know, you're not going to drive them off because they smell at you, but they they do want to land into the wind. So you always want the wind to your back so they square up and come straight into you. Um, and it helps with calling also, right? So if they're not positioned correctly, you're calling. They may want to come down, but they just can't make it happen so that it's just a lost cause. So the way you create movement in waterfowl hunting is by positioning your decoys differently. You know, yesterday morning I was out, we had a crosswind, so I created a J-hook on my my um, decoys so that you'd kind of hook them in, and they don't want to fly over decoys to land. So you create this J-hook so that you get them in close enough so you can shoot them. Well, the wind transit transition to the back, where it's coming directly from the back of us. So you got to run out there, move your decoys, and position them correctly so you create a gap so they can come straight into you. So your movement doesn't isn't on your legs to create an opportunity for for you know a harvest. You you <laughs> the difference there is you're moving decoys to get the animal to position correctly so that you could harvest it. We've had to do the same thing elk hunting. We had to move a decoy to get it you know, uh, get a, a elk to respond to it, you know? Yeah. And then, you know, you, you think of the shooter and the caller as you have to start positioning yourself. So you can kind of look at that as the, the decoy movement, right? But I think that translates really well also. So, um, th- yeah, there's, there's a ton that I think that you can take from waterfowl hunting that you can move over to, to elk hunting. Well, is there anything though that messed you up as an elk hunter? Uh, you know, for me, I've, you know, I've always, you know, duck hunting, you're very cautious, right? You don't want to do any movement. You want to be very quiet. You want to be very still. You got, you know, if you got a flock of 20 birds up there, you got 40 eyes looking down, right? So if anything, again, you know, I think animals have a very strong, um, will to live. Like, you know, I used to have 40 turkeys go through my backyard every single day. And I was like, man, they're just the dumbest birds ever. But as soon as you put camo on and you try to hunt them, they turn into these like ultra like you know weary birds, and it's like an elk or a turkey or a duck. Like anytime they see something that's not right, they have such a strong will to. They may not be smart, but they have you know such good senses and a strong will to survive. They're like, nope, not going to do it. They're going to hang up on a ditch. They're going to hang up on a ridge. They're going to hang up you know wherever. Right? And the ducks are the same way. So. um you know, the thing that gets me is like, you're staying still, you're playing it cautious, right? And, and whereas elk hunting, you know, sometimes you gotta rake a tree, sometimes you gotta make some noise, you gotta sound like elk, sometimes you have to go after them, right? And so that kind of screwed me up because I always played the cautious game of being still, being quiet, creeping, you know, and, uh, you know, just in the last five or six years, my game elk hunting has become very, very more aggressive. Than I would ever be waterfowl hunting. And so, so what really sells it in the in the setup for the ducks? Is it the sight? Is it the sound? What sells it the most, or is it the combination of those two? Yeah, you know, and it yeah. goes back to it's a, it's a combination, but it kind of goes back to what Mark was saying: is you know, pressured versus not pressured, right? You want to be in an area that they want to be in, that they feel safe in. So you get, you get fresh birds coming down from, from the north. They haven't been shot at in this particular area. You've done your scouting. You've done your homework. You know, they want to be in this particular area. 
right? So then secondly, you want to make sure your setups correctly, the decoys look right and everything else, and you got a good hide. Um, so that, that all plays part of it. Now, if they're pressured, just like you guys were saying, you have to become, you have to finesse game, right? You might want to take decoys out. You want to do less calling. Um, but you know, it's, it's all in, I think the emotion and cadence of your calling has a lot to do with it, you know, um, because you, you have to kind of hit them with a call before they think of something, you know, you're just like, okay, they're going to think about going over there. So you got to hit them right before that to get them to turn and swing in. And, you know, I think that's the same with all kind of too, like your cadence and your emotion and how you're doing it. You have to really sometimes finesse it. And sometimes you could just bull rush it, right? Just go straight yeah. on and make it happen. So, you know, it's, it's hard to say. It's so situational of what makes that difference, you know? So let me ask you, is it best for you at the destination or the transition area from between destinations for them? Well, you know, they call it the X. So if you're on a feed, you know, if you're on the field where they want to be or if you're on the loafing area where they want to be, they kind of call that the X. If you're anywhere in that transition point, you're kind of traffic. And so traffic hunting is very much more, it's much more difficult than hunting on the X. You know, because when they want to field, they want to field. When they want their loafing area, they want it. They've been there. They felt good. You know, they feel secure. Um, so those are the easier places to hunt them. Um, anytime you're hunting traffic or their route to and from, uh, you really have to do a lot of work to, to pull them in there because they don't really want to stop there. It's, they're transitioning. Yeah. And that's, and that's the point I bring up there because that translates to elk right there. We have so many people that are trying to hunt elk and stop elk in transition. You know, we, we, we jump on those elk a lot of times late in the morning when they're already moving to a destination. And then we think we're going to be able to stop them and they're wanting to go. Those cows are going, man. And you know, we get the bull to stop and talk to us and we think, Oh yeah, he's, he's going to do it. And next thing you know, he's, he's further away instead of realizing that by being, you know, in those destinations, we have much better chance once we have them in their destination because that's where they want to be. Right. So I guess that's the X right there. Yeah. Yeah. Just different terminology, but same, same concept, right? Bill, a lot of times those ducks will be going away from you. You hit them with that highball call and try to get them to turn back. Right. Same thing with a bull who's kind of figured your setup out and he decides he wants to leave. Well, you might hit him with a little like chuckle and he might turn around, come right back into your set. So a lot of that translates. What's a highball call? <laughs> a highball call is, it's an emotion, right? It's, it's, you know, hey, get over here. That, you know, that, that would be like a comeback call, right? Hey, get over here. Yeah. yeah. You know, so, you know, you're kind of yelling out like, hey, I need you over here. Right? Safety in numbers. Like, get, get your butt over here. And so it looks like, it looks like my wife. Calling me every time. <laughs> so, Bill, if if you if you had to translate a highball call to a an elk call, what what which one would you translate that to? I would call that you know if you're if you get to like a real aggressive bull, right? That you're you're a big bull and you're looking for a fight, um, or you know an old you know. Uh, lead cow type of call, but it's, it's more of an aggressive type of, of call, huh. right? Um, versus doing like a calf call, which would be like a feed call or a quack, right? 
Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's an emotion. It's, it's the type of animal that's down there. Sometimes you do this real raspy, you know, quack, which is this old hen, right? Um, or you might do a nice, nice, crisp, light quack, which would be a young hen. So, you know, I call it fishing. You know, you, you see a flock working and maybe they're, they're not interested and I'll fish. So I'll try a highball, try a feed call, try a comeback call, try a quack, old hen, young hen. And once I see a wing beat change, then I'm like, okay, that's what they want to hear. So then I, that's what I'm fishing with, you know, whether it's a crankbait or yeah. spinnerbait or a worm, right? I try right. what they want to bite on. And once I find where they want to bite, that's what I start using, right? And I've translated that into elk hunting too, where, you know, I'll fish and see what bull wants to play. And maybe I have three bulls going off, but which one really wants to bite on what I have to offer? And that's the bull I go after. And it doesn't, you know, maybe that bull doesn't sound as big as the other ones, but he actually wants to bite on my bait or, you know, wants to play with what I'm doing. And that's the bull I'll go after. Mark, when you're trying to find uh, that button, that call that pushes the button, what do you work through for something like that? I completely agree with Bill. I think, uh, I think calling is exactly like fishing, whether it's turkey or elk. I think you carry the kitchen sink with it and you have multiple different voices to throw that stuff out there to see what they bite on. Cause I think it's, it'll be all over the board. I, I think you can sound like a red Hereford bull that, you know what I mean? I, I was laughing elk hunting this year. Some of those elk I got into sounded the least elkish that I've ever heard anything, you know, and then there's some real high fluty type stuff that you hear. So I, you know, I think it's a variable. I think it depends what they bite on and, you just keep throwing it out there till something hooks and go with that. But what do you throw out first, bro? I usually try to start a little softer. I'll, I say softer. I'll, I'll go on the cow call side first and kind of start up there just because it's just a little less of a push and then work into bugle and two. And, but I mean, I, I mix back and forth all the time and I don't think I'm predominantly one way or the other. Um, I will say, I think I bugle a lot harder than most guys. I'll, you know, I'll do the one, two, three, four, five high shrill pitchy stuff all, all day long, but I by no means am afraid to get dark and dirty with it either. Um, I, I think that that works just as often. And then there's some instances like I had, I think my second day in the, this year was probably one of the craziest days I'll kind of have ever had. And I had like a 380 out in front of me, multiple 360. It was just an elk cyclone. And I got into it for about two hours and I finally put all my calls away. Stuck my grunt tube in my pack, knocked an arrow, and just got in there because there was so many damn elk. There was so much energy. It didn't make a damn bit of difference what I was doing. I just had to try to slip and slide and try to get a shot. Um, so I think, you know, you just have to be prepared for anything that comes your way. So I, I think you have being able to, to switch it up calling. And and even me, man, I, I think I can halfway run a call. But at the end of the day, that second day in, man, it made no damn difference. I just had to pack it up and just go hunt. So, you know, it's all situational. Yeah, and it's funny you say that because late season high-pressure ducks, you sometimes won't even call. You just put movement on the decoys. You know, you have a jerk string. Yep. You just you just don't say a word. You, you know, you just use your movement, your decoys, your setup to get their attention. And you know, they're so shy to calling. You know, every time somebody's called out and they get shot at, so they're like, I ain't going down there. So sometimes you just yeah. cut up and – let your decoys do the work. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I'll, I'll compare that. What you're saying with that is, okay, so I'm always a big proponent of raking, right? I think 
you know, I think any low-level audible noises with elk, and it's not the same rodeo. So when you start doing just like those glunks, those pants, you know, those types of things, those real quiet, just little, little, just little bitty chuckles in there, it's not the same scream, it's not the same mew, it's not the same things going on all the time. When you alter that a little bit... And it's not movement because we're dealing with trying to get that to do it a different way. We're trying to bring something to us, and we're not able, if we can give the visual, we have the opportunity to do that with a decoy. A lot of people don't use that, uh, and I think it's something they're really missing out on because I think decoys are are fantastic, you know, for doing you know, for bringing those critters in and all kinds of critters. I just saw a meme. Well, it's not even a meme. It's just a video the other day. I've seen two different ones of people that have got blown up deer in their front yard. One of them is huge, just like the size of a friggin' Volkswagen. And both of them have had bears come in thinking that it's real and attacking these blown up, you know, Rudolph deer out there because they have that effect. It's like, you know, so I think decoys have that. So I think that's something to think about that I want to relate to what you're saying is it might not be a pull string, but it's not the same thing that they've been hearing the whole time. And that's something for people to think about there, right? Joe, I think the key to everything that Mr. Bill and Mr. Mark have said is their understanding of the language, right? That's the key. Understanding what calls to use at what time, what the ducks are saying, what the turkeys are saying, uh, all of that couples into understanding back, back to elk, what are they saying, right? When you know those things, it's a whole lot easier when those ducks are going away to hit the highball call, when you know that that's what they're responding to, right? Or when that bull's walking off or that cow's walking off and they're nervous and you chuckle, that chuckle's an invitation to an elk to come over, right? So when you chuckle at them, that calms them down. Same thing with those lighter duck calls. But what it all goes back to is every one of these guys speak the language. So when you speak the language, things get easier. Well, and I think there's another thing they're saying is you got to have multiple tools in your toolbox. And not only you got to know what the elk are saying, but sometimes you got to know what all the other hunters are saying to the elk, right? You know, right. I mean, those ducks, the reason you're not calling it those ducks or the, those call shy turkeys, the different things is because everybody's been throwing that same thing at them, right? It ain't their first rodeo after a while. So that's, that's what I'm trying to tell you is it's just like a change up pitch in a, in a, you can't keep throwing the fast pitch all the time, man. Every now and you got to throw a little curveball. You got to add a little slider to it. You got to do something a little bit different if you want a different result. So I think that's a big lesson that I'm trying to pull out of that as well is you've got different kinds of movement that is not the same old road. You've got different kinds of sounds, you know, and you've got the things that you're just going to try and tempt with. And sometimes you put them away and you go after it, man. You just hunt the hunt, right? So, yeah, that's awesome. So let's let's switch it up here again. I'm going to go to our – I'm going to the Flatlander over there this time because, Cole, you just got back from that hunt in Oklahoma, hunting whitetail. You were successful. That's kind of your critter that you love to hunt over there. Which whitetail sets do you think, or skill sets, do you think actually hampered you? Because we know how you're successful. Which ones do you think hampered you when you started hunting elk? Um, for sure, right off the bat, just uh, 
probably being scared, you know, of movement and sound. Uh, I think a lot of guys are just so freaking gun shy of, of blowing, blowing their opportunity. Um, and not understanding, you know, if the elk didn't smell you, a lot of times you can get away with them even seeing you and still recover that situation if you know what you're doing. Whereas like a newbie coming from out east that's never elk hunted and has only deer hunted, man, they're just, they're just so, they're too timid. You know, they're, they're even, even covering country. I think they're worried about bumping animals or, you know, um, scaring them because they're hearing them or whatever it is, or getting into the bedding area, right? You hear a lot of whitetail guys talk about that. Oh, oh, don't ever go into the bedding area, you know? Um, and I think that, uh, immediately just hinders, you know, hinders your success whenever you're thinking about deer tactics. Um, yeah, it's, uh, man, I've even, I've actually changed the way, I deer hunt because of learning how aggressive I can be with elk. Like it's made me a way better white tail hunter, um, just because in what way? sort of put a little more aggression. How, how? Well, because now I think I am more apt to, um, like see what I can get away with on these deer. Um, just like using the decoys and using calls and even I've had some deer, look at me and, you know, notice the movement of me moving through somewhere. Um, and then me actually start grunting and then raking a tree and end up convincing them that they saw a deer, you know, and then I end up coming up and, um, you know, not really having an opportunity, but at least not having that deer completely blow out. Right. That really called my attention when you show me the pictures, uh, like, five or eight yards from the white tail deer here in Texas when you like Beto says all the time that you man you are walking on, over the cornflakes and stuff you know <laughs> so it's really hard to uh, put up good uh stock spotting stock uh deer um white tail deer here in Texas so it's uh it's pretty hard pretty hard pretty difficult well yeah so- Gil, you're the other whitetail hunter, man. So how about you talk about those whitetail skills that for you do translate across elk hunting? Grinders tuning in, thank you for listening to the Blue Collar Elk Hunting Podcast. Our goal is to share our knowledge and help you flatten that learning curve so that you too can have some of the very same incredible experiences that have given all of us here at Elk Bros a lifetime of memories. If you like what you hear or see, you can get all of this information plus so much more from our Base Camp Elk Hunting Training Camp, the first in a series of online courses from our Blue Collar Elk Academy. Our Base Camp Training Camp allows me to use my coaching style and share almost 40 years of elk hunting experiences successfully hunting elk on public lands as well as over 20 years guiding hunters of all ages and experience levels. This course will be like nothing you have ever experienced in concept and structure using success-based coaching techniques that will elevate your confidence and skill sets. Our camp will prepare you specifically from that final moment most in your control, those final minutes or seconds the elk is in front of you. 
backwards through each step and level, allowing you to see, visualize, understand, and relate every coaching point to what lies ahead, the next step, the next thought process, the next success. Because, y'all, you've already been there. You know what it looks like. By tapping my 30 years of teaching and coaching experience, our camps are developed considering multiple learning modes with text, visuals, audio, as well as video. And base camp will benefit those new to elk hunting all the way to the 10 to 15 year vet. So if you are looking for that one thing to help you fill that tag this year, invest in the most important piece of equipment there is, you and your elk hunting knowledge. You can find the Blue Collar Elk Hunting Academy and the Base Camp Training Camp at elkbros.com. That's E-L-K-B-R-O-S dot com. Keep dreaming of the screaming, believing and achieving, and most of all, keep grinding. I'm a South Texas guy, and even in East Texas, we grew up, uh, you know, watching Bill Jordan and them guys uh Michael Waddell rattling horns and uh I love calling anything, you know, ducks, geese, it doesn't matter anything. So what Cole was talking about, uh really being able to you don't have to walk through cornflakes when you call them to you. They run through them cornflakes and jump on you, you know. Uh those are the those are the cool things that most people, you know, in Texas, they either stand hunt, they get in a a box blind and they sit there and wait for a feeder to go off and, you know, the elk or the deer come around them, you know, and, uh, those does come in heat and the bucks come in there and chase them around and you hoping they shoot them over a food plot or a feed area or river bottom or, or whatever it may be, an acre and flat. I mean, um, so all of that translates into elk hunting, right? The big thing with elk hunting though is, you can fool some deer's eyes. Um, I do it all the time. We draw a lot of times with a deer looking at me, and they, they'll booger a little bit, but it's the same way with an elk. You can get away with a lot more. Just like Cole said, you know, I, I took that into elk hunting is where you didn't want to move at all, but we quickly understood that elk were going to allow you to move, right? You can fool their eyes. But the big thing with elk and deer is you can't fool their nose, right? A white-tailed deer, when he smells you, you can confuse him a little bit, but you ain't confusing a bull elk. <laughs> there is no confusing them. They smell you, they're out. Uh, so for for me, the, the scent thing, and we play that every day in the whitetail woods, is knowing which way our wind is going to be. I mean, I pick stand locations from prevailing winds to set up so, and I may have two different sets in a location where it be a ground blind or a tripod or a ladder stand, but there'll be two different sets for our prevailing winds, right? So in, in the, in the whitetail woods, for us, scent is a big deal, right? They're, they're, that's one of their baseline defenses is their nose, just like an elk. And, uh, for them to really kind of get tripped, Sometimes them old does, if they smell you, they'll sit back there and, and I mean, they just keep going off about every 10 minutes and you're ready to shoot her in the face when she walks in. But bucks are a little more tolerant at, at times during the rut for smelling things, right? But generally, if they smell you and it's enough for them to be alarmed, man, the thing about them is that if they smell a human, they may not come back for a couple of weeks, 
You know, they'll actually leave that core area because now they've smelled the human, right? Whereas I think, I think elk, when they do the same thing, they kind of leave their core area, but they'll gather back up with the herd and, and come back. So some of the stuff really translates for me. And then another thing for me, Joe, that really translated was the aim small, miss small deal, right? I mean, when you're looking at a whitetail, their anatomy is so much smaller than an elk, right? You just don't have that much room for error, right? So for me, it was about being close to the shoulder. That whitetail's shoulder and everything else is easier for us to punch through. Well, when I got to the elk woods, I wanted to be right close to that shoulder. And y'all all know that ain't no place you want to be on a big bull elk is in that shoulder, right? Um, that's, uh, that's an accident waiting to happen. So, uh, one of the things that I had to learn real quick was that there's a lot of room behind that shoulder on a bull elk to be done. And, uh, there isn't a lot of room behind the shoulder on a whitetail. Believe me. Ask me how I know. Uh, I spent this last weekend, made a great shot on a whitetail, and it actually wasn't all that good. And uh, ended up 11 hours later, deer still alive and having to put, put him down. But at the end of the day, um, I was an inch to the left too far. And, I mean, it really didn't make any sense. Should have been a slam dunk, but it wasn't. Whereas on a bull, if I'm an inch to the left of that crease or two, man, I got eight more inches I could go. You know what I mean? So those are some of the things that I took away from from elk hunting and whitetail hunting. The anatomy part was a big deal for me to learn. Yeah, I think I think anatomy is huge. Um, as, especially as you talk about different animals, but there's something else that I think whitetail hunters are always thinking about when they go to hunt elk. And you guys can all chime in this. I don't know if you've ever done it, Mark. I don't know if anybody else has done it, but I know a lot of whitetail hunters try to use scent attractants. Like they'll, they'll use, when they whitetail hunt, they'll use scent attractants where they put stuff out. And I've had guys ask me if they shouldn't wear scent attractants during elk hunting. What's your point on that? I think it helps. Um, I think anything you can do helps. I mean, the problem is the elk woods are the elk woods. I mean, I spent five days on the side of a mountain with no shower. I mean, it's, I mean, there's only so much stuff you could control out there with, with what we have to deal with in the mountains. But if you are in a situation where you can control it and help it some, I think it helps. Absolutely. Um, it's just, do you think you can wear a cover scent or a scent attraction on you and help? Um, you know, I've had a few instances, like we had one year where we were blowing up everything at like 60 and 80 yards. I mean, for like two weeks straight. And then we, one day we, we got into some situational stuff and elk were getting a lot closer. And, <laughs> and my, my hunting partner didn't say anything at the time. And about three o'clock in the afternoon, I was like, man, I have been smelling elk all damn day. I can't. He says, well, hell man, I've been wearing these damn wafer things all day. That's, that's what, <laughs> that's what I've been smelling all day was, it was those damn scent wafers, but they actually, with where we were at, the wind was really inconsistent and it started buying us a few yards, um, enough to make a difference in being successful. So I do think it helps. Um, but then again, like I said, practicality hunting. And this was, so when we sold HS2, this was one of the big arguments is, is Cineway was such a big, big piece of their product line. Um, they really wanted to kind of push that and really implement that into the elf world. And you can only, only go so far with it. 
you know, yeah. I, especially guys, when you're solo hunting, you can only pack so much shit, man. And for me to take yeah. sin away with me or extra bags or extra clothes, that's just not, it's just not realistic for the way that I hunt. Um, if I have access, white, I'll use it. Joe, whitetail will, will tolerate a little bit of human scent. They will tolerate it. But when it gets to a certain amount, that's when they're out, right? Elk ain't tolerating none of it. <laughs> you and, but, know, you so know, when they smell it, it's over, I, dude. I, you know, okay, so I, I kind of disagree with that though, bro, in, in that, you know, I really think. Oh no, it's proof. No, the white tail world is proven, brother. Yeah, no, I, no, I, I hear what they you're saying. They will tolerate. There, what I'm saying is, is I think, I think it depends on the area. I think elk will tolerate it too. If it's, if it smells like a human that's farther away, I think the, the, the problem is, is when they smell something that smells like it's right on top of them, you know, so, uh, that's where gotcha. I think mitigating scent can help. Now, for example, myself for years, if I'm out in the woods, man, and I come across a, a, a fir pine, man, I take that fir pine and I'm rubbing it all over myself. If I find fresh elk piss, I'm rolling in it, you know, and, uh, and in my mind, whether or not it was a proven thing, but in my mind, I felt like I was able to get away with some stuff that other people weren't. And I was having a lot of close encounters. I mean, uh, I, we've done crazy things like, uh, Chav and I have, you know, because we read something where, um, animals weren't scared of vegetarians. Like they could, they smelled different meat eaters from vegetarians <laughs> smelled different. So we, we actually for three months became vegetarians, man. So that, so that we could see if we could get closer. <laughs> now, now I, I will tell you this. I'm not going to take it anywhere else that I could. If you're going to be that, <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't change. I wouldn't change my state. <laughs> you know, that actually uh, came, yeah, yeah. that actually came from what was going on during the Vietnam War, where they would feed our because our troops ate differently than their troops. Um, they were mainly vegetarians. They actually dropped things that could sniff out the difference of whether there was a vegetarian or a or a meat eater in the area and they would buy now they killed a lot of cattle because of it but uh you know so we kind of took that idea now and i'll just tell you this we got no closer than we did without <laughs> so i mean we found that we were just as close by mitigating our scent as much as possible um and doing the things that we did but i've never been one to wear an estrus scent or a wafer or anything like that myself. So whitetail. It works for whitetail. Absolutely, man. I've got some stuff. They, they'll hit that. I've got some stuff that's uh homemade. Um and I'll swear by it that whitetail don't smell me whatsoever, but it's so extremely dangerous to wear in the mountains that I won't wear it elk hunting. Well, we're not even going to spread that then, man. So, <laughs> but, so why no, it's the? Not, it's not anything that smells bad. Yeah, but why? Why the rubber boots for whitetail hunters then? Leave, leave no sense. Oh, they're just paranoid. That's what I believe. That's guys that are walking into a stand that they're hunting multiple days in and out. Um, see, there's different type of whitetail hunters that we're talking about here. Like you have guys like me that I hunt on the ground archery equipment. I don't use any stands. I don't use any of that stuff. 
I go out and get it done on the ground and I have to play it like I do the elk. You have to play the wind. You have to read your terrain. You have to look at terrain features and vegetation and figure out, okay, this is a spot that I've recognized before that they're going to bed into. And then I would approach from, you know, the correct angle and, you know, take all that stuff into account. Um, that that's yeah. hard, bro. Yeah. I tried for a public land. I tried for I don't know two years, and I shot a couple of years, and I couldn't recover anything. Say, and, and I said, hey, uh, now it's time for a, a feeder, bro. I'm telling you, it's what, what you do. It's amazing. It's really hard to well, put Derek, a, a Derek, bonus stock to a white-tailed deer. So during the during the run, I mean, we have like pigs here too and i know manana's going to touch on that but a pig it will smell exactly where you walked right. if you come into your stand in two hours and a pig hits that trail they hit it and they know exactly what that is right right they're one of the most gift one of the most gifted with their nose right so uh we wear rubber boots to try to stay as scent free as we can again like joe said if some of the a whitetail will tolerate some things. We spray down. I, I use cover scent, which is not really a cover scent. It's scent away. You know, we, I spray down my head and I spray my back down. You know, I take a shower every night, uh, in scent free soap and stuff like that. I mean, we do everything we can to gain that advantage. And then during the rut, we use some products too that are, you know, doe and estrus urine, uh, just so we can even attract some bucks that are coming in on a scrape line. We'll make mock scrapes. I mean, all those things work, right? We use a grunt tube. We use uh, rattling horns. I mean, all of those things for whitetails translate, you know, uh, the calling side translates to elk. Now, I haven't used any type of, of like, scent from a from a, a hot cow to lure in a, a, a big bull. I, I haven't seen any of that available, so... So let's, let's touch on how much area you're covering deer hunting, whitetail versus, um, elk hunting and why. So typically we hunt, Joe, we hunt <clears throat> bedding to feeding, feeding to bedding, uh, areas in, in different. And how, uh, how like big I'll of hunt. an area is that, Gil? Well, I mean, I hunt about probably 300 acres at a time, you know. Uh, and have a couple different stand placements in there for wind. Um, and whether I'm a rifle hunt or whether I'm going to, uh, bow hunt, I typically bow hunt most of the time. I like this weekend, I'll typically bow hunt in the mornings and then I'll rifle hunt in the evenings because I don't like tracking deer, uh, or hogs or anything like that in the evening time. I'll shoot a hog in the head and we like eating the meat here. So, that's kind of what I do. And then I get to see a broader area of what, what the landscape looks like. I'll see a lot more bucks that I, I can target and stuff like that as the rut gets closer. But see, you're so. talking broad area. You're talking 300 acres. And that's the point I'm trying to make though is the difference in how somebody's going to be hunting deer versus hunting elk and the amount of acreage sometimes that you got to cover to get to an area. Well, to give you an example, Joe, that, that place I was hunting in Oklahoma was um, close to 30,000 acres. Okay. I was averaging about nine miles a day. Is that, oh, is that usual for most white-tailed deer hunters right there? No. <laughs> no, that's very unusual to cover that kind of miles. And do you think you cover like that because of your elk hunting experience? 
Yes, and because um, elk hunting's made it to where I'm like, okay, the deer are out there somewhere. So I target large properties that maybe are more difficult that people don't necessarily want to bow hunt. Um, and then I, you know, I go after those areas because the pressure's less. Right. Um, and, but, you know, most, most guys out east, they don't have the privilege to have that swath of land. It's like, you know, I, I, whenever I was in Kentucky, it was nothing to go see just like three to five to 600 acre places that are scattered all throughout the county. Um, but I, 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 now I still approach that the same way, like as I would elk hunting, I'm coming in and, and I'm basing my hunt off of terrain features and where I think the deer are coming and going. Cool. So RC, let, let me switch it a little bit to a different kind of deer. Mm-hmm. How about we change the focus to mule deer? Are there any specific mule deer hunting skill sets that don't translate over to elk? Bring you everything. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, mule deer is a different animal. I feel like anyway. Uh, it's spot and stock. Right. 99 point percent of the time. Uh, I, or, I never have been successful as far as trying to rattle anything in. I've got lots of uh, mule deer under my belt from just getting out there and our season here is if you hunt, if you're lucky enough, you can get to hunt in January with the bow. And what happens in January, generally I have lots of snow. So what I'll try to do is I'll try to find a big track because I'm generally trying to hunt the big deer and I'll try to track this, the big deer down. Uh, and a lot of times what will happen is that you'll jump him. He'll be bedded. And I don't know where I read it or heard it, but uh, some famous mule deer person said something about the fish hook pattern. And I went, hmm, well, that's pretty interesting. So being in the woods all the time, I started doing this. In other words, I would take and jump a good muley. He would take off, and I would go probably 50 yards. Then I'd turn around and go right back where I was, and it wasn't five, ten minutes. That mule deer would show up above me or below me coming back around. And what they do is they like to go, and they'll they'll jump, and they want to see what it was that jumped them up. How's that different from elk? Well, I mean, can you can you use those, those you know, for late season elk? Getting in a track and and trying to track them same way. Yeah, a lot of times uh, I feel like if you know naturally you're going to have to have the wind right. Sure. Okay. Um, a mule deer. One of the things that I've learned too in hunting mule deer is that you take off and you're just walking. You'll walk by more mule deer than you can imagine if you just, you know, go a hundred yards and stop, just flat stop and be still for a moment. They can't handle that. And 99% of the time there's a deer, especially if you've got a lot of tracks and stuff around that will jump up. Now for elk, 
I feel like it's the same thing. I've, I've had real good luck finding a couple bull tracks, just keep going with them. And for some reason, <laughs> you get in there and they're curious, especially at the time of year that I was hunting them. They're, they're looking at you like, what, what, what is it? Versus a mule deer is going to jump and leave out. A lot of times an elk won't do that. All right. Yeah, so what, what have you seen that does translate over from deer hunting to elk hunting? Did you hear that, y'all? I've got to take a second from the show to tell you about the Enchantress call from Slayer Calls. This call, it gets you the most realistic bugles and cow calls I have ever heard from an external. Look, the folks at Slayer Calls designed this external call to act just like a human tongue. So literally, with the push of a button, anyone can use this bad boy to bring those puppies running. Look, if you struggle with diaphragm calls, or you have a partner that's just not able to call, y'all, this right here is your ticket to sucking those bulls right on in. If you want to try the Enchantress, which they're calling the Elk Slayer now, to put me in your freezer, then just use our code. It's one word, ElkBroSlay. Again, that's the code, ElkBroSlay, on SlayerCalls.com. Scouting, knowing the animals, where where, is it, where they're at. You know what I'm saying? In other words, you've seen, in other words, you've gone in the area and you've seen a big buck. Mule deer. Mm-hmm. Well, ninety percent of the time, he's still going to be in there. In that area, he likes in to stay that, in that area, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It seems like with mule deer, the areas that you find them are the areas you're always going to find them. There's a reason for that, right? Right. But, but I think that same thing. I think that applies. That's like what Mark was talking about earlier as well. Is I think a lot of that applies to elk. There's a reason why elk like certain areas, and a lot of times you're going to find them in those same areas year after year after year. They might have multiple bedding areas. They might have multiple feed areas. They might have multiple watering areas. But there's an attract and there's a reason. It's just like what Bill was talking about with that security, you know, with that safety, with that feed, with that water. There's certain things they're going to attract them that is going to be those same things year after year now what is it that like with those turkeys cause them to disappear for a while like for us where we had the the blowdown this year or a predator come in yeah sure they might like gilbert said vacate an area for a little while but it's going to be because of things that are happening there whether it was a weather pattern whether it was a dry year whether it was a wet year whether you know something happened that they ended up moving animals out to another area whether there was better feed offered in another area than what they were currently in or maybe like this year you had moisture up high that um wasn't there that let them stay higher longer they didn't have the snow melt the same way in different in different areas so there's a lot of different things that cause some of those features but what you're saying about the deer about those areas that they like you know that's the nice thing about deer is like you said you find a buck in an area you can probably go find that buck in there three days later a week later right in Mm -hmm. some of those areas in there mule deer to me they're they're really they're a tough animal to try to get especially with a bow well one Uh, thing i found the difference that i found with them is when I hunted mule deer, 
I was going to move at a snail's pace. I was going to still hunt through trees. I was going to do a lot more looking with every step I took. So much different than what I did with elk. But at the same time, I was able to take that stealth skill. Like Mark said, if you're in a situation where all of a sudden you got to be stealthy instead of you got to put the calls away, you have that ability to be stealthy as well. So I think some of that can apply. Definitely. Anybody else on the mule deer, Mark? Do you have any uh, points on that? No, man. I I just don't hunt them enough. I've got guys that are great at them, but they're they're an entirely different critter. You know, I've got I got some buddies that are stud at it, but they shoot a two hundred inch deer every year during archery. But it's all big buck buck country, and you know, with all this talking, whether it's elk, deer, turkey, I don't care what the category is. The one consistent across the board is. Those guys put in huge effort. The guys that are great at it put in huge effort. When you listen to anybody on any category, the ones that are doing it consistently, man, that those guys are outworking everyone. Absolutely. Yeah. That's We're going to go to another critter. Manano, let's talk hogs, bud. So that's uh, my favorite animal, bro. <laughs> so, well, uh, what are the vast differences? differences between the pigs and elk? Well, for us, uh, uh, shot placement, it's a big one because they, we call it NFL hogs. They, not for long, they always are moving, you know, going around even around feeders. So the shot placement or, or the, or the size of the body, it's, uh, it's significantly, uh, different than an elk. So you have to be pretty accurate. So, um, the elk, if you go even even behind the crease, you're gonna be fine. But last week I shot uh, two hogs, uh, not even one inch behind. I got a lawn and I got uh, man, it was an inch behind the shoulder, and I was tracking those hogs for 200 yards, and I and I have to uh, put another arrow on them, so. That's a, that's one of the the uh, the biggest difference. The other difference is the uh, the hogs. They don't need two triggers. As soon as they smell you, they're gone. They're gone. So an elk, if you're lucky enough to not, uh, if the elk sees you, uh, they would stop after you know fifty yards. They will turn back, and then that's a done deal. Hogs are different. They will run <laughs> forever. So that's a, another big difference. Um, what skills for hogs that you have mess you up for elk? There's not much of a difference, in my opinion, if you are hunting uh, in the ground. So what about your pig hunting has really helped you be a more deadly elk hunter? Absolutely yes, because they 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 don't see far, uh, but they smell you from a mile away, a mile away. So even if you try, we have tried everything. I have damaged. We we use uh this little uh Hoson Hoson uh device. <laughs> so all oh, my Hoson, yeah. yeah. So you know that 
damages all the rover or any any yeah. any material uh yeah, that's the like yeah yes man so <laughs> i have tried everything Thank that's you. you must have the weed in your face in order to hunt pigs period yeah in so, the shop placement on pigs and and whitetails are that's critical yeah that's critical also so I think the only animal that we could hunt with the wind at our back is ducks, yeah. if I understand right. And turkeys. And turkey. Turkeys. And turkey. And turkey. Right. The hog that I shot scares and run like, run like, uh, I don't know, 50 yards and then another hog came and that hog smelled my arrow from, I don't know, seven or eight yards away from the arrow and they boom man they disappear yeah. it, it, it was incredible I've actually incredible. I've actually seen people put things down in an area and have helped go buy it and it not booger them and I, I haven't figured that out because I mean it has to have old scent on it of some kind but check. it never boogered them we, whereas check you get a Doesn't pig work. right there it's, it's, it's not going to happen like nah. Doesn't you know, work, bro. Yeah. It's like, like I said, you walked two hours after you've been in a blind. And when they hit your scent line, Gandhi, they're out, buddy. Yes. They're some, they're some of the most talented animals, some of the most wary animals you could ever hunt, man. It is incredible. Well, another that, thing that, that I want people to understand, too, is like when we talk about sound, like a lot of times when you walk through the woods – if you, and I know this, when I was still hunting mule deer, you know, moving through the woods, if I snapped a stick, I stopped and waited 15 minutes before I ever took another step. Because if there was a deer in the area, it was going to blow it out, right? Mm. Whereas with an elk, I want to snap stuff, right? Yeah. Sound like I another mean, elk. I, yeah, I can make, I can literally just use noises, just ground noises to attract an elk. I don't even have to use an elk call. I can use just sounds of, of sound like one that's moving through the woods, one that's eating, you know, one that's raking. I can use those kind of sounds to bring an elk in. Where if I did that in the deer woods, you know, uh, I'm, I'm messing up. As far as I, now with mule deer, I don't know about whitetail. Well, I know that this year I had run. Yeah, this year I had that chance with that bull that came in, but he went by me. I had him, but what did he do? He stopped on my scent that where I had walked in there and turned around and went pulled out. So that's similar. Elk have a tremendous nose as well. I'm very cautious about where I'm walking. You know, a lot of times people find elk trails and they walk on them. You know, we have horses. And, you know, I watch the horses and, and I'm very observant how they react to things because they, you know, they're a flea animal just like a deer or an elk or anything. You know, if you start creeping around a horse, you know, mm-hmm. it could be dead, it could be dead broke and you start creeping around the horse because you're scared of it or you're weary of it. Like, <laughs> you know, all of a sudden the horse gets a little oh, yeah. spooky. They're like, what are you doing? Are you a mountain lion trying to jump on my neck or something? Like, Right, or you just go about your business, you throw the saddle on there, and you just do what they're used to seeing, you know, or hearing, um, and they don't flinch, right? And then a horse could find its way back to the trailer because it could smell the trail that it walked on, 
So it, it's finding its way around the woods because it could smell where it's been two days, three days, four days before. Um, so I, I, I firmly believe an elk could smell where you're walking, you know, so I try not to go to the bathroom where I'm going. I chew tobacco. I try not to spit on the ground. You know, I try to stay off their trails. Um, uh, you know, I think animals have an amazing ability to smell things that we couldn't even imagine. I think so, one of the things yeah. that I'd learned a long time ago is that when you, when you do have to walk and you're trying to get around in front or whatever, a lot of times it helps to walk in the sunshine where you know that that little patch of ground that you're walking on, it's going to get the sun's going to hit it and it's going to burn your scent off. Right. I've learned that a long time ago. So, uh, no far in the woods, Joe. <laughs> you, you know, animals are amazing critters in, in Texas. There's only two things that are irrefutable in a court of law. One is the horizontal gaze nystagmus test, and the other one is a dog's nose. When a dog hits on something, it's gospel. That means they don't miss, right? right. They smell in parts per billion. And talk about an elk or a hog, they smell in parts per trillion. So, I mean, the, I think the number one thing on a, on a scale of who's got the best nose is a bear. Then you got a wild hog and you got elk, deer. Yeah, I mean, and it goes like that, but animals like, like Mr. Bear said, they have a unique ability to stay alive because of what God gave them and to use their sense of smell to get out of danger, to avoid danger, uh, in, We've learned how to coexist with them in the woods, but when you elk hunt, you better learn how to not go in and blow things out because you're not paying attention to the wind. That's the most important thing I think is got to have the wind right. Yeah, and it's not talked about much, um, but, you know, Bill kind of brought it up a little bit, the whole thing about um, going to the bathroom in the woods, man. And, you know, I think there's some guys out there, they thought about that just a little bit more about what they're doing because, you know, I'm one that turns rocks. In other words, I'll turn a rock and create a hole to be able to urinate in and then put that rock back in it. I try to keep my, and, and maybe, you know, there's going to be things that are going to, you know, here and there, but as long as it's not a big old pool and I try to get it so that it's not as much scent that's going around there. And there's things that guys can do to try to mitigate some of that. Now a bear craps in the woods and they know that that's a predator in there. You know, a cat craps in the woods. There's different things that, you know, that happen out there. And it's, it's just a, about a time thing, but you put a cat in an area and watch mm-hmm. how quick it gets cleared out of elk in that area. Right. Yeah. So, right. I mean, those are just little things to think about, you know. Uh, you know, so, you know, and, and it's not, so it's not stuff that's talked about a lot, but it's just things that, that's ought to be on your mind. And I, I think as long as we always err on the side of caution, right? Cause right. we don't truly know I me. Mean, we're, we're just guesstimating on, on most right. of it, trying to use some common sense. But I think as long as we err on the side of caution, that's mm-hmm. at least puts us in. I was going to say to round it all, all about Joe, I, I want to tell everybody. Um, I think you should be more aggressive whenever you come out if it's your first time than what you think you would be. Um, 
move according to the wind and where you think animals could be. Um, and, uh, don't be afraid of anybody that's in your area and you ruining their hunt, go hunt your hunt, make the calls. Don't worry about being embarrassed about your calls. You make be aggressive and, uh, just keep pushing for it. Yeah, totally agree. I think and if you're I, a hunter, you can go out there and get it done. That point of timidity, I, I think is huge. I think so many guys yeah. come out and they are extremely, I think they're apprehensive about calling and I think they're apprehensive about moving. I think they're apprehensive about, you know, even this year, I, I left a handful of elk to try to go hunt where I thought there was more elk. A lot of guys won't, won't go do that. Um, you know, I, I yeah, I agree. I think guys are way too shy on right. how they move. I wanted to bring up the point on the wind. A good wind does not always mean just a wind in your face. Cross quarter winds, whatever you know that you have there so that you can utilize and you can use your nose as much as they use theirs on that, you know. Um, so that's, that's always something. And we really preach aggressors. Now, one thing that, that we didn't cover for, from a lot of this though, but we heard it and most people don't think about it is, when you take turkey, for example, and you're doing a setup, whether you use a bird, you know, as a decoy or not, or the ducks when you're doing the decoy like that, or when you're doing the rattling for the whitetail, you are trying to paint a picture of something that that animal is doing that is a selling point to bring other animals <clears throat> into it. And uh, I think that's something that a lot of times guys and gals do not apply to elk hunting. They just strictly stay pretty much single-minded one-on-one with an animal instead of trying to create an environment in which they feel safe in where other elk are doing elk things, just like you would with turkeys doing turkey things, ducks doing duck things where they can see, you know, when ducks fly over and they see ducks down in there moving in the pond, they hear that talk going on, they feel safe. They get fooled into that and they get lured in and that's, that's that. So, and the same thing when you're doing the rattle and you're setting up your sense and you're doing the right things, you are creating an environment. So that's one thing that I think all of these talk to as far as that goes. And, you know, even with the pigs, one thing we didn't mention is, is, you know, the calling. Pigs actually are very verbal and pigs can be called as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that's something there. Um, nice point. <laughs> Speaks the language, y'all. <laughs> I speak it all. Anything uh, you guys would like to add to this as we're going out? This was fantastic. I really appreciate you guys. Anything you'd like to add? Well, uh, I had a question uh, for uh, Cole or Gilbert. Since they are the, uh, the whitetail experts, but, uh, I never call in a, or rattle up a, a whitetail deer. Oh. So how effective is that? How, how huge in the rut, free rut and rut. It's huge effective, but, but it's, it's effective, effective only for mature and dominant monarch. You, you call them in no. all ages, baby. All. And I, I want to. I want to say something a little more on top of what Gilbert. So I called in a buck this year. It was, uh, early October. Um, and it was just basically like how bulls would do for a pecking order. These bucks, as soon as they rub out, it's just like a bull elk. They, their testosterone's flowing. 
They've got to see where they are in that pecking order and who is the one that's going to get to breed. And instead of doing right. a super aggressive like a fight, um, Manano, you just barely tickle those horns together right. and be real easy, throw some grunts in there like they're pushing back and forth or even just like they're raking a tree. Um, early October uh, called in a nice, a nice eight point. I'm just going to say I, that I, very I same it, point you know, can apply like over the, to elk. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Most definitely. Well, what for I'm sure. getting at is, like, I, that's one thing that elk hunting has changed for me is now I don't want to I don't want to shoot an animal unless I've called it in. That's why I rattle and do the things that I do yeah. is because I'm too impatient. I want to make things happen. Right. I want to be moving, covering country. Now, if I spot something, then I'm going to go try to put a stalk on it. Uh, but I want to call all of my stuff in. I want to convince those animals that they think I'm their, their buddy or whatever their, right. and, and come, you know, come into my bow range like that. Well, I, I got to try. Yeah. So here, here in, oh, dude, you got to get out there. Right. So here in South Texas, our rut doesn't happen until sometime around the 18th through the 20th of December. So, but bucks are kind of feeling their own right now. And last weekend I was sitting in a tree stand. I often sit in a tree stand till noon, one o'clock, just because I'm sitting in a river bottom and they're coming in there to bed and they're coming in there to chase does and they're to feed. And I heard a grunt from behind me. And I turn around looking a doe's walking in. And I'm like, well, I know it ain't that doe grunting. And I turn and look by and she stops, looks behind her. And here comes a really nice eight point. And he's just, and he's, not chasing her, but he's letting her know he's there, right? So he kind of mm-hmm. turned off and went away from my blind, and I went, well, I want to see him. So I dug in my pack and got my grunt tube out and grunted at him twice, just real soft. <laughs> Man, you should have seen him turn and beeline fuzz all up like he knew another buck was around. That's his territory. So now I know that buck, I'm in his in his territory, right? He didn't come in there till 11 o'clock with that doe. And all I did was grunt twice with a grunt tube. He turned all the way around and came through there. And what I didn't know is he had a big scrape line that he's been working in there. So he's getting ready for this rut that's going to happen here in the next two to three weeks. And it may be earlier because we've had quite a bit of uh, cooler weather down here So and wet. So typically on wet years, we have a little bit earlier rut down here in, in the in the southern part of Texas. But, man, you go clash horns together right now because it's pre-rut. You go clash horns together in any of our front fields, and they will about run you over from the big ones yeah. to the little ones. <laughs> Early season elk, and that's the same thing those bulls are doing, man. Those bulls are setting pecking orders, man. They're playing. They're doing a little bit of that tip stuff. They're just – just nice and relaxed doing that. And it's a great way to pull a bull in to find out, Oh, who are these other guys in my area? Where do I fall in line with that? Because a lot of that is set up before that rut ever starts, man. So that's, that's something to remember about that. Mark, Mark, I wanted to ask you and Bill too. Is there anything that you guys want to add, uh, going on with y'all's companies that are coming out? Some things that we may need to look for. Uh, with the y'all are coming out up, coming up. Uh, for me, we've, we've done a full revamp on all the frames. Um, I've pretty much got everything put to bed. We're waiting in our, our first initial orders before we market them, but we'll have a brand new elk frame for this next year. We'll be 
and and it'll be in three sizes. It'll be the small, medium, and large, which was our biggest request, I think, from everybody in the industry the last five years was a certain style frame and have it sized out. So that'll be coming for 2023. Still working on some other stuff, but we're not quite there yet. But the diaphragms are, I think, we'll be there hopefully in a couple of weeks even. Yeah, and for Slayer, you know, we came out we came out with a twenty, you know, our first tube was twenty three inches and you know about four inches in diameter. So it's a pretty big tube. So a lot of feedback we've got is, you know, folks want something a little smaller, something more compact. So we'll be coming out with a it will it'll be called the closer. It so it'll be a smaller Is it a bat tube? Yep, it'll be a back tube. So it'll be the closer. So something you put on your backpack, you'll have a, a hose that comes up onto your backpack just like a hydration bladder. Yep. Um, we'll be using the acrylic technology, the waterfowl technology for back pressure to create better sound. Oh. And then um, cool. it'll be a closer so you can protect the sound behind you um, while you're getting in close. Awesome. We love hearing that, man. Looking forward to that, guys. Well, fellas, it's been fantastic having everybody on. You know, I like we tell our listeners all the time, if you like what we're doing, please subscribe rate and review us. you got to go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes to review us. And you can check out more elk hunting content at elkbros.com. And just a reminder to all our listeners, if if you'd like any of your questions answered on our show, just send your questions to info at elkbros.com. That's I-N-F-O at elkbros.com. And like we say here in the Lone Star State, husbands kiss your wives, wives kiss your husbands, hug your babies, keep your broad head sharp and your powder dry. And we'll see you next week right here on Blue Color Elk Peace, peace, everybody, man. And for our listeners out there, to close out our show, here's some more music from our brother, Mr. Tony Winter. Strap on those spikes, boy. the world behind. There's dreams here to chase. You got the rest of your life. The grass is cut, the dirt is dry. And this field was made to run on. That fat ball leather on the ground And smile as big as the blue sky Cause this field was made to run on Through the mire, the way you throw the 
fastball or the way you're going to rip that fender. Troubles 